Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories that developed this week, federal executions are back, and for the first time in seven years, a death row inmate was put to death in Indiana. Daniel Lee Lewis was a member of a white supremacist group and was found guilty of murdering a family of three, including an eight-year-old girl in 1996. There were also two other executions scheduled to take place this week. For more on this story, we'll speak to Tim Evans. He was a witness to this first execution and an investigative reporter at the Indianapolis Star. Daniel Lee was convicted in a 1996 murder in Arkansas of a uh, gun dealer, the gun dealer's wife, and the uh, woman's eight-year-old daughter. He and a co-conspirator were both convicted of three counts of murder. They were both white supremacists, and his colleague, who was the mastermind of the group, Chevy Kehoe, was tried first, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. Daniel Lee was sentenced after Kehoe and got the death penalty, which uh, you know was a bone of contention for a lot of people because Kehoe was seen as the ringleader, and Kehoe was actually the person who killed the little girl, which is probably the most heinous aspect of the crime. Did they say why he got the death penalty over Kehoe? It's interesting. In 2014, the retired federal judge who sat on the case and the retired federal prosecutor both wrote letters to the Justice Department saying they didn't think it was fair. There was an indication also one of the victim's relatives had written that Kehoe came off a neat, clean cut. He was more articulate. He had some strong character witnesses on his behalf where um, Lee had a a neo-Nazi Rolling 7 tattoo on his neck. In terms of character witnesses for defense, he looked to imposing. He had an eye that had been damaged in a fight. So in a lot of people's opinions, it was more of appearance than culpability that created the uh, disparity in those two sentences. And his last words in this whole thing was, you're killing an innocent man. Tell us a little bit about the delay in the execution. Part of it was Lee was part of a lawsuit alleging that it was cruel and unusual punishment, the use of the one drug protocol, the pentobarbital. There's been other executions that have brought up similar things. So it was put on hold. And there was this moment where Lee was on the gurney for a few hours while the judges were still kind of debating back and forth. And then they ended up giving the go ahead. Lee was actually scheduled to be sentenced last fall and appeals at that time uh, regarding the one drug protocol, which was obviously new for the federal government since it hadn't executed anyone since 2003. He was put on hold and then he was scheduled to be executed Monday at 4 p.m. And there were last minute wrangling over the weekend. Friday, a federal circuit court judge issued a stay over the weekend. Another uh, superior court got involved, removed the stay. And then there were a flurry of last minute delays on Monday. And ended up, again, he was scheduled to be executed at 4 p.m. About 2 a.m., the Supreme Court ruled that he, the execution could go ahead and uh, was tentatively scheduled for 4 a.m. And uh, we got called back to the prison a little after two, after, right after that ruling, and went to the execution chamber. We were ushered in there a little after 4 a.m. and waited again. And as there was one last um, appeal, uh, Lee had been in the execution chamber for, since about 4 a.m a little bit longer than we were, and was strapped to the gurney in the actual room, which kind of looks like an emergency room. In a hospital, he was strapped to the gurney from 4 a.m. until 
they began the execution a little after 7.45 a.m. And in the end, they said that this drug, pentobarbital, has become a mainstay of state executions. It's been used over 100 times without incident. It's considered less painful than other lethal injection protocols, so that's why they went ahead and approved it. Tim, you were there to witness this execution. Is this the first one that you've witnessed? Yes, and hopefully the last. Did you notice any complications with the protocol? No, it did not appear. And I obviously, you know, I'm in the glass window. I could not necessarily hear what he was saying if he said anything. It looked very peaceful and calm. He did continue to breathe longer than I expected. I don't know know, um, what I expected. It wasn't instantaneous. It seemed to go over a matter of two or three minutes at least uh, after they began administering the drugs. But he didn't rise. Some of the horror stories you read out of places like Oklahoma and Ohio where they had some botched executions. There was nothing like that. He um, kind of moved his head at one point a little bit. He, I guess, bubbled his lips a little bit like he might be blowing bubbles. But nothing came out and there was a slight twitch on one of his arms. But beyond that, there seemed to be no restraint, you know, wrestling against the restraints or no suffering or, or, or wild thrashing or anything like that. It, you know, appeared very peaceful and in a surreal sort of way. You mentioned, obviously, you hope this is the last one you were to witness. I just have to ask, how has this impacted you? This was just a few days ago, but how has this impacted you? I think it still hasn't all sunk in. I knew other people who had covered executions before, and I talked to them a little bit. And um, so far, knock on wood, it was emotional, obviously, but it wasn't the kind of uh, emotional impact that I had expected necessarily. And I don't know, some of that, he you know, obviously wasn't reticent at all. He didn't make any kind of apology. He was kind of defiant in his last moments. And I was able to be more detached than I thought I might be, being only five or six feet away from where it happened. But time will tell. I, I was up for about 36 straight hours. I had a little bit of sleep last night. You know, I still haven't processed everything, but I tried to steal myself as much as possible. And um, so far, so good, I guess. Tim Evans, investigative reporter at the Indianapolis Star. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Have a good day. Another big discussion this week was the reopening of schools in the fall, and it continues to be a contentious discussion with some committed to on-campus instruction and others only online. Los Angeles, San Diego, and Atlanta, three of the nation's largest school districts, said this week that they will begin school online and then bring students back later in the year. For more on this story, we'll speak to Laura Meckler, national education reporter at The Washington Post. What is happening is that there's conversations in pretty much every district across the country about how to deal with the situation. And there are some that do plan to open up as normal five days a week. A lot of those are more rural districts. But now we're starting to hear from the big cities. And as you said, just this week, we found out that Los Angeles, San Diego, Atlanta, in addition, also Nashville plans to start the year fully remote. So that means we're sort of back to where we started from in the spring. Now, there's also quite a few districts who are looking at what are being called hybrid models, where kids are in school certain days and at home other days. The idea there being that if you kind of cut down the number in the building at any given time, you can allow for some more social distancing inside the classrooms. So those are the two major ideas that are really out on the table. We have to go back to the concerns that happened with this past school year. Basically, everybody had to transition very quickly to this online learning, distance learning, has it goes by a bunch of different names. And it was very tough for a lot of school districts to make that transition. They weren't ready. They didn't really have the right infrastructure. This time around, it's going to be a little different. There's going to be a lot of the same, I suspect. But 
where you started off a class year with a bunch of kids and you kind of got to know them. This year, you're going to start a new year off with a new teacher, a new set of students. That's going to pose its own challenges in and of itself. This is going to be so difficult. You are starting out at the beginning of the year. You've never met your teacher. You're going to be covering all new material. And you're starting out remote or partially remote. I think that's a lot harder in a lot of ways. I mean, they do have more time to prepare for it. So that's the good news. But on the other hand, as you said, school let out in March, but they had, kids had already been with those teachers since the previous August or September, which I think is a big difference. One of the other ongoing concerns as well is the safety of teachers. Uh, obviously, we've talked about it a lot. Students are only half as likely to get infected by coronavirus or even get serious symptoms. But teachers are a different story. One of the stats you had in your article, there's an estimate from the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that one in four teachers are at elevated risk based on their age or underlying health conditions. Right. I mean, that is, and the teachers unions are very concerned about that, especially for older teachers or teachers who have some sort of compromised health condition. You know, we don't really know that much about how much students are carriers for the virus. We do believe that they do not especially younger students get particularly sick from the virus, but, you know, can they carry it? We don't really know. There's evidence going both ways on that front. So the question is, it's not just teachers. Also, it's cafeteria workers. It's bus drivers. There's a lot of staff. It's people who work behind the desk at the office. There are a lot of people in that building, a lot of adults in the building. So that is a concern. The CDC has said that, obviously, a lot of these decisions have to be a local decision based on what's going on there. Los Angeles and San Diego put out a joint statement saying that they were going to be learning from home at the beginning of the year. I think in their statement, they said something about there's a disappointment for teachers and parents as well. What did they say as far as what they're going to do to enrich that or try to get the beginning of the school year going in a better way? They said that they're going to do more training of both teachers of how to make distance learning work. And also they're going to offer some training for families so that they can know how to interact with the system better. We'll see how much of a difference that makes. You know, I think a lot of us figured out in the spring that even for families that have all the advantages and really are not facing the kind of difficulties that some are, it's really hard, especially depending on what kind of kid you have. If a kid needs a lot of attention and you're trying to work from home, that's not easy, especially when you have families that are already in a vulnerable position who are scraping by maybe of parents who have lost their jobs because of the impact of the crisis. That's even harder, I think, for those. And I just don't know how much training is going to really get you there. So we'll have to keep our eye on that. Sticking with California as an example, just to kind of illustrate how deep the divide is. So we have Los Angeles and San Diego saying they're starting the school year online. Orange County, which is right in the middle, their board of education just went a different route. They voted to go back to the old ways. On-campus instruction, no face masks, no social distancing. Now, the Board of Education there in Orange County doesn't have direct power to direct any of the school districts on you know, how to follow its guidelines or anything like that. That's set up to the individual districts. But the Board of Education is highly involved with the way they operate. So that, like I said, this just illustrates the divide that's going on even within a state itself. What are some of the other school districts that are planning to reopen fully? I know you mentioned a lot of them are very rural districts. Yeah, I mean, not exclusively, obviously, but a lot of them are rural districts. And let's be clear, I mean, if you're in a county or a state that doesn't have a lot of COVID cases, that probably makes sense. You know, you want to still use some precautions and modify your the way you operate. The CDC has a lot of guidelines for how to go about doing that. But 
let's keep in mind that there are risks to going back to school, but there are risks to staying out of school as well. Academically, socially, and from a social emotional point of view, it just can be devastating to be at home for children. So there are some districts that are talking about going back full time. And I think that's what everybody would ideally like to be the case. But, you know, I think what we're also going to see in a lot of places, and we already are seeing, is these hybrid models where you're partly in, partly out. That's what New York City announced, that New York is a huge district. It's by far the nation's largest district. Laura Meckler, national education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There was also a lot of stories about testing for coronavirus. The demand continues to go up and the supplies continue to dwindle. And as we hear stories of long wait times and even longer waits for results, that doesn't seem to be a problem for sports teams that are testing players every day and getting results within 24 hours. For more on how sports teams are handling their testing, we'll speak to Louise Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We got a few answers by talking to the testing provider for the NBA, a company called BioReference, and to Major League Baseball as well. What the testing company for the NBA said was that they are prioritizing in a separate channel, if you will, healthcare workers and other essential workers. But in the other category, in terms of deciding between non-essential businesses that they're going to favor or move to the front of the line faster or less fast, the NBA is in there. So are other large employers. It's something of a free-for-all. They're not setting priorities over where the NBA fits in the grand scheme of things. The NBA has been working with them for a long time. They clearly got in there. They have other advantages, including being an hour away from the laboratory, which sort of cuts down on transportation times and the risk that things can go wrong there. But it's absolutely the case that they're testing several times a week. There is a national shortage of tests. There's a national shortage of processing capacity to get results back to people in a meaningful time frame. And you're absolutely right. You know, a result 10 days later is useless in that it tells somebody what their coronavirus infection status was 10 days earlier. It's only good at the moment it's taken anyway. That's actually why the NBA is doing such frequent testing, because they have a bubble, but it's not an extremely strict bubble. But you've certainly heard health ethics experts raise the question of whether it is appropriate for the NBA to be testing its players, in some cases more frequently than healthcare workers may be being tested. It's a tough situation. Everybody wants sports back. They want that escape, something to distract them from everything else that's going on. And there's a lot of jobs tied to it. So I totally get the want and need to have professional sports back. But you're right. When there's a lot of other people and cases are surging all over the place and the shortage of materials, it's a very tough act to balance. And right now we're going through this bottleneck with laboratory turnaround. I think that's one of the main things in addition to the shortage of some supplies. I know the chemical reagents continues to bog us down with all of that. So tell us more about how BioReference Laboratories goes about this. Because as you mentioned, they are very close to the NBA section, but how do they go about it? As I understand it, they're providing all of the services for the NBA. They're sending somebody to collect the sample. They're transporting the sample back to the laboratory and they're processing it. Now, by doing this, 
they have avoided some of the problems that Major League Baseball had. As we understand it, Major League Baseball had one contractor to collect samples, then it arranged shipping to a laboratory in Salt Lake City that had previously been doing performance-enhancing drug testing for them. That allowed MLB to say they weren't taking away tests from anybody else. They were creating new capacity for tests. But it also turned out to be harder to get that program up and running. And over the holiday, the July 4th holiday weekend, there were problems, particularly with shipping to Utah. That has prompted the uh, the league to turn to an East Coast laboratory, Rutgers, for East Coast teams at least. That is also another one of these large laboratories that's handling a lot of tests for public and private clients. Again, emphasizing that there is kind of a free-for-all when it comes to establishing testing channels. There is no national system. There's no national line. There's nothing for anybody to jump uh, in terms of the line as much as they're kind of all competing against each other for access to these tests in that section of, of the economy where everybody wants a certain industry to be back, <laughs> depending yeah, on how, how exactly. strongly they feel about it. For some people, the priority is absolutely sports. For other people, and this is where it gets risky for sports, the priority may be public school teachers getting tested so public schools can reopen. It's, it's a very tough one to call. And, and as the executive chairman of Bioreference said, he's not calling those priorities himself, but also nobody else's. And that's why a lot of governors across the country have been calling for some type of national strategy when it comes to testing and beyond that, contact tracing, the whole thing. But, you know, the administration has not stepped up on that front. And for their part, the Rutgers lab said that if they're like in a place where I guess there's not a real big surge of cases. And if there were to be one, they would take a step back from the MLB ones, I think they've said, to help with that. So, yeah, I mean, it just raises a lot of questions. I know the NBA still is on track for their July 30th start. But as you mentioned, they're just burning through tests every day they're getting tested. For them, I think the greatest risk is the perception issue. Mathematically speaking, the number of tests they're using in the grand scheme of things is pretty small. The optics, however, of running a successful testing program when other people are not able to secure test results fast are really tricky. The optics of running an unsuccessful testing program that doesn't work also means that they can't play under their own self-imposed rules. So it's a kind of no-win proposition for them. I think it's also really interesting to note the larger context in which all of this is playing out. In March and April, there was a certain demand for tests in order to diagnose sick people and establish whether they needed to be isolated from the rest of the population as it was sheltering in place. What you have going on now is a combination of two different things. You have a partially reopened America where people, as a result, want or are being told they need to get tests for everything from having a fertility treatment to entering the state of Maine without undergoing a quarantine on their arrival. Or people are deciding that the most responsible thing for them to do if they want to see an older relative is to get a test in advance. So you have all of that demand that wasn't there in March and April. And on top of that, you do have cases surging. So you have the same kind of demand to diagnose people who are sick as much as you also have this new ongoing demand for people who want to screen effectively to make sure that they aren't sick and seek that kind of reassurance. And that in the fall, as we start looking at universities reopening, is only going to get greater. Luis Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.